0: too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com/therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's hello com m a.com/therapy30. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt.
1: Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Fujia and Miyagi behind me now. And we're calling today's episode Dirty Work, because these are four stories about people who got into messy situations while pursuing their careers. We're going to hear from comedian Dave Ross in just a little bit. But before that, we'll hear a tale told at the Risk live show in Los Angeles. Over there at the Nerd Melt Theater, this is the lovely and talented comedian Melinda Hill with a story she calls Six Ways to Bomb on America's Got Talent.
2: So... Okay, guys so for new beginnings um <laughs> is anybody thinking about joining uh, or auditioning for america's got talent <laughs> this could be a new beginning for you so i thought i would help you with this um i have some experience with it um i was on it did anyone see that by chance no because nobody we know watches it but it is it's a show you guys know what it is right okay so i'm gonna do six ways to bomb on america's got talent to help you guys out okay okay so the number one and i'll tell you all the ways first and then we'll go back and we'll review this will help you with your new beginning okay Six Ways to Bomb in America's Got Talent. Number one, set out to do well and then do not. Uh, number two, do not be a crowd pleaser. It's very important. Number three, refuse to give real answers in your interview. Number four, Definitely do a rape joke. That's a no-brainer. Number five, refuse to jump up and down to show excitement. Very important, you guys. Number six, have the entire internet agree that you're not a crowd pleaser. Okay, so let's go back and review. Number one, um, was set out to do well and then do not. And I can tell you about... Uh, My experience with this, very few things in life can compare to standing in front of your giant name in red and yellow lights, literally the set was my name and bombing on national television. Um, Maybe if somebody tuned in during that time, they would be like, oh, who's this poor girl? They didn't need to ask that because there was (laughs) my name. (laughs) It's amazing though, like how entitled people feel to just come up and tell you what they thought about your set when they see that happen. Like people are just like, yeah, you looked stiff.
3: <laughs> that
2: could have been really big for you Aww. like a game changer too bad my dad hated you <laughs> It's like a real conversation starter, like bombing on national television. And it's a real conversation ender. And um, so here, like, you might not know if you're bombing or not. Um, it's hard to tell sometimes like if there's a, light, like, a lot of lights in your face. So here are some telltale signs. Um, you're talking, and people are laughing at one point, and then they are not. Okay. And then it just kind of dissipates into a shocked silence. (laughs) Okay. And when this sort of approval and support of 3,000 people in a studio audience and three celebrity judges and 20 million TV viewers dissipates into a shocked quiet one could observe that without laughter, stand-up is just a sad person talking.
3: <laughs>
2: to a lot of people, okay. Uh, number two, do not be a crowd pleaser. So I, was, I went to see my managers um, at Brillstein Entertainment here in Los Angeles and I was like, you guys, I think I'm, I'm thinking about doing America's Got Talent. They were like, that show is for amateurs. You're a professional comedian. We represent professionals. You are no different than our other clients, Jennifer Aniston and Natalie Portman, except they have millions of dollars in the bank and you don't. <laughs> and then I said, well, my friend did it last year and she like, did well on it and she's a comedian. And so they pulled up her clip and they like, watched it online and they were like, Melinda, this girl is a, an impressionist. Impressionists are crowd pleasers. You are not a crowd pleaser. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then my other manager said, Melinda, do you realize that they boo people on that show? Like just imagine it. Like tons of people just yelling, boo. On national television nope not for you so I'm like you guys I hear what you're saying but I really don't I think it'll be fun and like a silly experience and like it's only 90 seconds of jokes you know for the audition and I'm used to doing four and a half minutes of jokes like on (laughs) Ferguson and comedy TV and all these other shows like how hard could it be so my manager said all right if you want to end your career This is as good a way as any. If you wanna pander to the lowest common denominator, who are we to stop you? He was joking, but anyway. I went and did it. Okay, so number um, three, refuse to give real answers in the interview. This is very important. Um, reality shows are known for you know people really their personal triumphs and their like the sad stuff that happened to them. So I thought um, as a comedian, it would be more appropriate to give silly answers in the interview. You know, so like backstage when they were interviewing me, they're like, "So do you think you could win this contest?" And I'm like. Um, I'm really only here to meet my real dad. (laughs) Who I have reason to believe is Howard Stern. (laughs) I'm not trying to win this contest so much as look for a strand of DNA, a hair on a cup. (laughs) They're like, really? Do you think you could win this contest? I'm like, I would love to win the toaster oven or whatever you guys are giving away. (laughs) How'd you get into stand-up? Well, I have always wanted to do stand-up. It's been a a lifelong dream, so you can imagine how sad it was when I was born with no legs. (laughs) Stand-up? I couldn't even sit up, right? (laughs) So they put the camera down, like, totally pissed, like, you need to give real answers, and I'm like, I can't do it, and they were pissed. Okay. (laughs) Number four do a rape joke um so these are the jokes i was going to do for that i did for my america's got talent audition it's only five jokes i'll tell you the first three um the first one goes um i've been thinking of joining a religion i just don't know which one to join because there's so many options and it's confusing religions are like rappers and they all claim to be the best one but the more popular they are the more they get away with rape <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, and um, the second one goes um, <laughs> A lot of people have a personal motto or creed that they like to live by I guess my personal creed is just no matter how bad things are they would definitely be worse if a creed song was playing <laughs> And then, um, I think it's so important to value the sacred institution of marriage. I'm not personally married, but I do have a boyfriend and he's married, (laughs) Uh, and so on. And um, so, they didn't air my initial audition, but they flew me um, instead to uh, New Jersey Performing Arts Center to compete in the contest as one of the YouTube 12 YouTube acts like we found these great acts on YouTube in the quarterfinals of the show So before they during this time. They're like you need to you can't do the rape joke the aforementioned rape jokes uh, standards and practices reasons Um, And also you're gonna need to change your entire act Um, You you have to do jokes that judges haven't seen yet. So um, You know I I was like fuck what I'm gonna do and hadn't really had to like make such an abrupt change since my entire childhood growing up with a bipolar dad, like (laughs) moving 27 times. So I just was like trying to regroup from being censored. And meanwhile, there was another contestant in the show whose talent consisted solely of getting kicked in the nuts. (laughs) Okay, number five. Um, Oh, so what I ended up doing was, Um, using some jokes I'd used on other TV shows. I was like, that have been on so many shows. I was like, I don't wanna use these again. What are you gonna do? Number five, refuse to jump up and down. Okay, this is so important um, because after my audition, um, my first audition, I walked off the stage and um, the, the celebrity judges were Sharon Osborne Howie Mandel and Howard Stern in there, like had moved me on to the next level, sort of reluctantly. And the camera person was like, how do you feel? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, did the, I don't know if that went well. I don't even know if this is airing. Like, And she's like, how does it feel to be validated by America? I'm like, I don't really think I was validated by America. I don't am I wrong and they turn the camera off they're like totally pissed they're like we need you to be excited like jumping up and down they gesture to all the people who are genuinely excited to move on to Vegas like the dance acts and the bands is it like crying tears of gratitude and they're like let's try this again and I'm like I don't really jump up and down to show enthusiasm like no matter how excited I am Let's try this again. Are you excited to be validated by America? I was like, maybe. (laughs) Was this the best night of your life? I mean, it was pretty good. (laughs) Number six. Oh, so I forgot to tell you. Because I failed, I failed miserably the enthusiasm hand job. So they tried to like change tack, and they're like trying to get me to like belittle my opponents. They're like, "You're the only girl comic in the contest. Do you think you could beat the male comics?" And I'm like, "I don't know. They seem solid. They seem like nice guys." <laughs> they're like, "Yeah, but you're a girl. You're going to bring something different to the table that the guys can't, right?" something you're gonna bring something they can't do i'm like what do they want me to like yes what i intend to bring to the table is a giant vagina (laughs) that america can climb up into but i guess like they don't really people don't tune into a reality show you know to see like a twice daily meditator just say like (laughs) You know, there's enough for everyone. (laughs) We all have a special gift to share. (laughs) The gentlemen seem very nice. Okay, number six, and lastly, and this is so important. Have the internet agree that you're not a crowd pleaser. Um, After I bombed on national television, I went back to the Best Western Plus in New Jersey. I was by myself. I fell into a downward Google spiral, like just... (laughs) Googling the comments about the show, it was like just eviscerating me. These people were like, she's not funny. She's the same jokes on Craig Ferguson four years ago. She needs to brush her hair. And I was like, oh my God, did I ruin my life? Like, should I hang myself from the floral drapes in the Best Western Plus? I was like on this business chair. I was like thinking I should text my mom from the sad future of my East Coast time zone. She was like in Kansas, like throwing a viewing party at a Hot Wings bar. And it was gonna air there like in a couple hours. And I was like, should I let her know? Like cancel the party. But I didn't know what to do. And I found myself feeling um, like it was kind of like my own personal Vietnam. and like i was kind of like jealous of this other contestant whose talent was playing bells in a bird mask B- because even though the judges hated him he still had his anonymity <laughs> so basically um i I was really scared that my managers were just going to drop me. But to this day, they've never mentioned it. I don't think they ever saw it. So please don't let them know that I bombed on America's Got Talent. Thank you very much. And I I hope this helps you have the new beginning you're looking for.
3: Melinda Hill.
4: I've always been terrified of confrontation. It's not that fighting never came up. When it would come up, my response was "You win." <laughs> like, uh. <laughs> I like never wanted to have anything to do with it. I've always been slightly terrified of men in general. Just like the shape and their like just looming figure of a man coming by is like clearly that man that I don't know hates me and I'm gonna die. Like that's kind of the way that I've floated through life. Um, Also, I'm very liberal, and, uh, you know, uh, as a liberal, I think I'm contractually obligated to be afraid. But I I fell in love with radio when I was in college, and the first job I got out of college was uh, six hours a week, midnight to six, as a DJ, at 103.7 KRZR, The Wild Hair. In Fresno, California And the station Was like a man station I mean they're called the wild hair The wild hair by the way is a reference to that term Uh, He has a wild hair up his ass (laughs) So it's basically like We're KRZR We're in your ass KRZR In your ass (laughs) What the station played was this, uh, Disturbed and Godsmack, like anything that would be in a Navy ad was played on this station. And it was just like, all the DJs were, when they were on the air, were like, hey, you like beer? Here's Metallica. Like, that's the way that the station was. Like, we like man stuff. Show me your boobs. I own a truck. Like, that's the way that the station was. And uh, I was listening to the station as I was driving in, you know, for my, for, like, for moving there for my first day of work. And I remember thinking, like, Dave, when you do this, you're gonna. You gotta not be a pussy. You're gonna come across some men. You gotta amp up the confidence, man. You gotta do this. And you know, surprisingly uh, to me, it was great for like a year. It was wonderful. I. I moved slowly up the ranks. I, we did a lot of writing comedy, writing audio sketches, and, and, and uh, I would perform in like stunts with them and stuff, and, and I became really good friends with all of them. It was, it was a lot of fun. But like I said, I, pre- I performed in stunts. So so then, <laughs> I've been there for about a year, I think, and, uh, and election day comes around. And I'm actually voting when I get this phone call. And here's what a liberal hippy-dippy asshole I am. In 2004... I wrote in Noam Chomsky and Bugs Bunny as the ticket I was voting for because, like, John Kerry was a robot or whatever. I thought, so I'm walking out of the polling place stoked on my dumb decision and I got a phone call from the afternoon DJ at the station and he wants me to come down and do a bit. I'm like, yeah, of course. I love radio. This is all I want to do. I'm in. I don't even ask him what the bit is. I go down to the station. But here's the bit. Me and a listener that had called in, we were going to be driven out to a polling place in the rich part of Fresno and we would fist fight, one of us wearing a John Kerry mask and the other one wearing a George Bush mask to determine the winner of the election. And my first thought, I didn't know the listener when they told me this, so I was excited because I thought that I was going to be fighting the intern, whose name was Manhole. And <laughs> and Manhole was a friend of mine and he was just crazy he was just like a crazy drunk kid who wore tutus and, and all the time and just like ran into walls but no Manhole was officiating the fight the listener that they called in this is literally what he said when i met him i was like hey what's up man i'm dave he was like hey what's up i'm steve and i was like oh, what's up steve and he goes i used to be in a peckerwood gang the Peggerwood gang is a prison Nazi gang. Those Peckerwoods are Nazis in prison. And when someone says, what's up, they don't mean, uh, were you in prison and what'd you do while you were there? That's not what that question means. But that's what he said, it was just on the tip of his fucking tongue, it was terrifying. We get in the car and we drive out to the rich part of Fresno, which yes, that exists. I know when people think of Fresno, they think of biker gangs and, like, date rape, which is mostly what happens in that city. But there is one part of town that is incredibly affluent. Like, really, just, I mean, honestly, just think of Brentwood. It's crazy. Uh, Just rolling, well-manicured lawns and big, beautiful Victorian-style homes, you know. And, uh, And there was a polling place in the garage of one of these people. So there are just all these, you know, Lexuses and Beamers pulling up and parking on the street. And and mostly old people, mostly elderly people were just sort of being pushed in wheelchairs up this pristine stone driveway. Or, you know, people in business suits cutting off of work, just going to their polling place down their rich-ass street. And here we roll up in just like a shitty 87 Camry, I think is what (laughs) Manhole drove. And we get out. This... Nazi who'd just gotten out of prison and me who thought he was like punk rock or whatever we uh, when we just go out and we stand in the street right at the bottom of the driveway in these people's way as they're trying to go vote. I slide on my John Kerry mask. he puts on his George Bush mask and Manhole is wearing a tutu right now. So we're both wearing plastic masks. Manhol has a tutu he's on the phone with Rick Rodham, which is the DJ's name, by the way, born for radio. Rick Rodham and Manhole. I can't even. Like, <laughs> Oh, God. they are going about that for days. So, Rick Rodham's on the phone with Manhole, and Manhole's like, all right, we ready? We ready? We ready? <laughs> I'm just losing my mind. This dude was a Nazi. He, like, I just, uh, I got to put on this John Kerry mask, and it's, it's just like a piece of... Laminated paper and with holes poked through, so I can't, I'm not gonna be able to see. And I'm pouring sweat, and he can smell the fear. I know he can smell the fear. Manhole can tell. He's like, Calm down, dude. It's like not a big, not that big of a deal. I'm like, I can't do it, man. I can't do it. I can't do it. He's like, You have to do it. We're, we're going on the air in, a, in like one minute. Oh my God. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. But then right before Manhole rings the bell, I had this weird moment, this explosion of confidence where I was like, Wait a minute. This guy's wearing a George Bush mask and he's a Nazi? When the fuck else am I going to get the chance to fight Nazi George Bush? Yeah, I'm punching Nazi George Bush in the face. This motherfucker's going down. I'm going to win this shit. He rings the bell, and I just unloaded on him. I punched him in the face like eight times. Just boom, 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 boom. All one hand. I didn't know how to fight. Just bam, 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 bam. Just yelling things like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. I just, I kicked his ass. I destroyed him in this first round. He was like in a daze. But then round two comes and Nazi George Bush isn't fucking around anymore. Bell rings, one punch, I hit the floor. Just boom and just for good measure the guy ran up and tapped me in the nuts. Just, just a little extra fuck you, boom. And this is all live on the radio. I'm crying about my balls in my face. Just... Uh, God, it was horrible. But it did predict the election. Like, perfectly. <laughs> John Kerry got nut-tapped in 2004. And what's really amazing is... On the drive home... The guy leaned forward into the front seat and said... Hey, uh, do you guys want to smoke some weed? <laughs> and I was just like... Dude, you're not supposed... I thought you were a Nazi, man. I just thought you hated Jews. I thought that's what you do. He's like, Oh, no, man. That's in the past. Live and let live. That's what I say now. Dude, I voted for Nader. (laughs) So if I look back at it, what happened in that guy's mind was... He was like, Oh, man, this is going to be fun. I'm going to do this radio bit. I'm going to fight this kid. I mean, I'm not going to like... We're not going to fight, fight. We'll fight and, you know we'll just say someone won and that's good and then and then this like crazy terrified kid was like just like punched him in the face a bunch of times and he was like well I guess I'm going to fucking kill him I guess I have to kill him I guess I have to kill him now I was wrong I fucked up that's crazy
1: This is Risk. That was Dave Ross with a story we call Politics as Usual. And this is Brad Sucks behind me now. Just wanted to say a quick word here about our friends at Stamps.com. You know, postage meter companies used to have the monopoly on printing postage. They could charge you an arm and a leg. But those days are over with Stamps.com. Because you get all the benefits of a postage meter. But at a fraction of the cost. All you need is your computer and printer. And you get official U.S. postage for any letter or package, any class of mail. You'll never have to step foot in a post office again. Everything you do there, you can do from your own desk. We use stamps.com, and we love it. So right now, use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone on the top of the home page and type in Risk. That's stamps.com. Enter Risk. In just a bit, we're going to hear a story from Kurt Bronneler at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. But before that, let's hear one from my good friend, Cindy Freeman, a very talented actress that you can often see at the New York show. And I am not lying. Here's Cindy with a story we call Time to Go.
5: So as 1988, I'm 24 years old, and the biggest concern for me at the time is my love life. I'm dating a stand-up comic named Matt, who is really, really angry. And when I started dating him, he wasn't so angry. But lately, his attitude had just gotten really hard to live with. (music) I was working at a murder mystery interactive dinner theater. One of the cast members, Chris, and I were really getting closer together, and I was developing just the beginnings of a crush on him. And even Chris was saying, as much of the cast was, what's wrong with this boyfriend of yours? And Chris was hinting, you know, you don't necessarily need to stay with somebody who's like that. Other people would date you. He and I, we really were cut from the same cloth. I had gone over to his apartment once with the rest of the cast to watch a movie after one of the early night shows, and the second I got in there, everything on his walls was everything that I collect. Movie posters from the 1950s, high camp tchotchkes, 3D Elvis clocks, like whatever weirdness was there. Like I owned some, and I was just like, who is this person who decorates the way I would if my boyfriend would allow it. And there were these points in the show where there were cast members who would show up later in the performance, so we would be huddled away upstairs out of the sight lines of the audience for about 45 minutes, and it would be Chris and me, and he would bring in comic books and everything he brought in I lo- like clearly we we really were soulmates and to me that just like I was so torn like do I stay with the the man who's having a hard time or do I leave him for my soulmate you know and that was the biggest issue for me that day so it is after our show on Halloween Eve and Chris's cat has just passed away and I'm sitting at the bar commiserating with him over this absolutely heartbreaking situation and my boyfriend shows up so I'm pulled away from Chris, talk to my boyfriend, it's a Halloween party and he's come by after a stand-up gig. I'm sitting with him when in comes this guy named Mike. Now, Mike is a regular at the bar. He is a handyman. And I think that he actually gets paid perhaps a little bit in liquor, like he has a free open tab for all the work he does there because he is there every single night. He's a real character, a real blue collar, Cambridge, Boston kind of guy. He is dressed as the Grim Reaper with white makeup and black around his eyes and black lipstick and a hood and a plastic sickle. And he is telling us, I am going to be the star of tonight's show, meaning the Halloween party our show's over Then he goes you think you guys do it well downstairs with the interactive murder mystery I'm doing special effects this is gonna be you've never seen anything like this and he opens up his shirt for us and underneath he's got this it looks like really bad bondage attire, it is a harness of sorts made out of the same kind of nylon that you would find for a safety belt and a car that he, he, you know, I'm like, where'd you get that? He goes, I bought it over at the hardware store. I made this up. I saw I saw Alice Cooper. I'm gonna hang myself the way Alice Cooper did and I saw it in a concert. It's gonna be great. And we're like, okay, okay, Mike. And he is so excited. He is gonna be the star of this show and, you know, it, that's okay. That's great, you know. So we go back to talking and he gets himself a chair and with one of his friends, he is looking at the beams. There's a lot of wooden beams in this bar on the ceiling. And he's looking at a beam when the owner of the bar comes over to him. And again, I don't really hear what they say, but I can tell the owner's like just shaking his head like, don't you dare. And there's an argument taking place that Mike really wants to do this stunt. You know, Halloween is not going to be Halloween until he has done this stunt. The owner is not in my bar. So owner goes back to work. Mike's all bummed out. And he's, you know, I'm sorry. You know, he won't let me do it and stuff like that. We're, we're all like, OK, Mike, you know. And it's funny because he's just like so excited. He's like, a, he's like a five-year-old on Christmas about this. And then the owner at about midnight leaves. And the second he leaves, it's like Mike is watching the door. He's like, he's gone. He's gone. Okay, get the chair. So he he grabs the chair. And at this point, there's like 50 people in the bar. And he manages with one of his friends to get the harness on one of the beams. And then he takes the, he's got a piece of rope with a, a noose, and he flips it over the beam. And then he's like, okay, okay, grab the chair, grab the chair. And so somebody takes the chair away. And now he's Hanging there, but not by the rope, by this sort of nylon cord that is, you know, coming out from the back, and then he's, like, hanging there in midair, and he starts doing this shaking thing, and, uh, like, he's shaking like he's he's hanging, but then the noose falls off the beam, and it's, like, in front of him like a, a, a necktie, like... This isn't, this is bad special effects, you know. But we're all like, yay, and we applaud because he's been supportive of us and we're actors, we understand. And so we try to be supportive, yay, and everybody applauds. And then he's like, Isn't this great? Is it great? Yay, it's, it's great. Then his friends are like, Okay, Mike, that was great. Let's get down. And he's like, No, 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 this is fun. I'll, I want to hang here for a while. And he's definitely enjoying the, being the center of attention. They're like, It's not funny, Mike. And he, he's like, I'm going to do it again. And he closes his eyes and shakes. And like he's having a seizure, and nobody's going yay this time. And they're like, okay, Mike, you know, it's it's not funny anymore. It's you know, it's time to get down. And he suddenly slumps his head over to the side, and his tongue hangs out, and it's like Mike. And he puts his head back up and laughs, ha ha ha! Isn't that funny? It's not funny. And he's like ah, and he does it again. It's like Mike, and he's like, isn't that funny? And it, it's not funny. And so I know that I am the one who suggests. He's acting like a four-year-old, and with a four-year-old, this is what you do. You you stop paying attention. If he's not getting attention, it's going to cease to be funny, and we're going to be able to take him down. And you know, most of the people there are in their forties, but somehow they all seem to think that I have a good idea, and so we all agree, like right, you know, and sort of like told to everybody stop looking at him, just ignore him, and stuff like that. And I go back uh, to talking to my boyfriend, most likely fighting, because that's really all we ever did those days. At some point, one of the cast members named Steve sort of announces in my earshot, "How long has he been up there?" And I turn, and he's still up there, and he's doing that thing he was doing before with the head to the side and the tongue hanging out. And the bouncer, you know, comes right up to him and says, "Mike, this is not funny. We're taking you down." And he doesn't respond. And it's like, "Mike, this is really not funny. We're taking you down." And he still doesn't respond. One of the women says, I really think something's wrong here. I think we need to call an ambulance. And the bouncer says again, Mike. And, you know, everybody starts saying, Mike, this isn't funny. None of us find this. You have to stop it. And he's not responding. And somebody grabs his arm, and the arm is like jelly. You know, there's no resistance whatsoever. And somebody announces again, we really need to call an ambulance. And I know that I'm the one who says, you know, this is what you do. Of course, I don't know why anybody was listening to me. They said, this is what you do. You, you tell him that if we call an ambulance and they come, it's coming out of his pocket, not the bars. And the bouncer's like, yeah, that's right. And he was like, Mike, if we call an ambulance, you're paying for it. Just letting you know. Do we need to call an ambulance? No response. And so everyone's like, oh, crap. So... Steve runs off, there's a police station three blocks away, and Steve runs off to get the police. Somebody from behind the bar calls 911, and the bouncer takes out a pocket knife, real sharp, and cuts through the nylon, and he hits the floor with like a thump, you know, and it's like, oh God, you know, suddenly this is... This is real, They're, you know. <laughs> and at this point, I back off because I don't know CPR. I don't know how to do anything. And his friends sort of surround him. And I imagine somebody was probably trying to do something like that. The ambulance gets there before the police, and they start working on him. And then they take him out into the ambulance. And I'm back there with the cast and my boyfriend. And my boyfriend starts laughing, just laughing and people are kind of looking at him and I'm like, you know, I understand you're upset, but you need to calm this down. And he's just like, God, what an idiot. Ah! you know, and I'm like, you're gonna upset people. We're in a tough neighborhood and everybody's upset and the cast is and I'm upset and I'm feeling guilty and I'm like, we need to leave. And he's like, Yeah, it's it's time to go home. And so we leave the bar and when we get out there, we must have been there for another 20 to 45 minutes and the ambulance is still out there when you look in the window they are working on him and I'm like oh God and we get in the cab and my boyfriend just said this is proof of Darwin's theory you know it's like you know some people just don't deserve to live and I just know that that was his take on it and it was just Again, I'm feeling guilty, and this is, he's not a good friend, but this is a friend, and Mike was a sweet guy, and I'm just like, you know, come on, and as we get home, he's just angry, he's angry that he had to put up with this, it's it's all about how angry he is, he had to witness this, and we get home, we managed to go to sleep. Um, I wake up at a start. I look at the clock. It's three o'clock in the morning. I managed to get back to sleep. I wake up and it's starting again. Now it's the phone and it's the police. They want to interview me because I'm a witness. And I remember my boyfriend did not come with me. I went alone. I get to the interview and they ask what I saw. I tell them everything I just said. And then I'm like, how is he? And they kind of look at me like I'm crazy, and they go, well, he's, he's dead. That's why we're interviewing you. And I'm like, oh, but they were working on him in the ambulance. They're like, no, the time of death was 3 a.m. at the hospital. And I realized like, that's exactly when I woke up. And I end up contacting the cast, and we all get together. And Chris and the rest of them had all gone out and got so drunk that Chris had woken up for the first time and probably the only time in his life in the pool of his own vomit. And he was shaken that there could have been two dead bodies last night and that there was this thing about being careless and that we needed to stop being so careless. There was such a difference between how my boyfriend was behaving at home and the cast, and as the days played out and we went... To the funeral, where the family was comforting us in this and saying that clearly it, it was time that God wanted to take him home, that the amount of times people begged him to be you know please let us take you down, please, you know and how everybody wanted him down, and he out and out refused that there was no reason why it was his time to go and that he ended up dying of a heart attack the harness had slowly as he had been shaking rode up on him to his rib cage and compressed his ribs so he slowly got less and less air and it was a heart attack that he died from. It was never from strangulation. Uh, he probably just was up there having a great time and slowly fell asleep, just passed out. The family was, you know, that's how he passed away. That's what the doctors said. And it was his time. And take comfort. And he was having a ball. He he was doing what he loves. And he loves just being the life of the party and making sure everyone has fun. And in his eyes, that's what he was doing when he left. And we took a lot of comfort in that. Uh, I took a lot of comfort in that because I was feeling so guilty. But it became clear to me, if life is this short, spend that time with people who are caring. And within a couple of months, I had left the angry boyfriend for Chris.
6: in the year 2000 uh, and I got an agent <laughs> I got, and what I mean by I got an agent is that there was a creepy dude who would hang out outside the theater where we all performed and then just kind of wrangle certain performers and convince them that he was an agent and then sign us uh, and I remember the first time let's say I'm not going to use his real name so let's just call him Randy Uh, which is very close to his real name Uh, and so randy's like hey i'm an agent uh and i'm like you know i have been improvising for like six months i'm like great like i don't need any other uh proof that you're an agent if you say the word agent you're an agent and i think randy well i'll explain to you my first interaction with randy after like he was just like waiting outside the theater is um He's like, come down to my office. So I go down, and it's a building, this is before 9-11, so it's a building right ne- next to World Trade Center, and it's a really creepy old building, and I go up, and I go up to like the eighth floor, and I walk into a room, and it is a, like it is a casting office or something with acting, but it's this tiny little room, and all along, all the walls are just uh, headshots of children. That's <laughs> it. Oh, okay. All like hundreds of children and they've been up there for fucking years. Like these children are like 45. And, uh, and, like, and I come in and I'm like, hey, is Randy here? And the guy behind, and like, th- it was the most disgusting, like, it could have been 1945 in there. And the guy's just like a fat man behind the counter he's just like,
3: Randy!
6: And then like Randy comes out and he's like, oh, this is a very, this is a VIP, this is a very important man, and can I use the office? And he's like, yeah, Randy. And like walks away. And, and then he's like, come, come right this way, Kurt. Right this way. You're a VIP. Come on in. And then we go to essentially a closet where there's another woman just like flipping through headshots. And he's like, I have a VIP. And uh, Charles said I could use the room. And this woman, without looking up, just goes, fuck you, Randy. And, uh, and he's like, okay, all right. Uh, well, you know, we use the new office. And we go to use the new office. And I don't know why I'm making him sound like Woody Allen. He wasn't Woody Allen. Uh, We go to use the new office, which is across the hallway, and that is just an empty room with carpet on the floor. There's nothing in there. And so we just get in and he's like, okay, like it's totally normal. And then we sit down on the floor and I give him my resume. So that's our first meeting. So I think, and then, so he sends me out on an audition, the first audition I go out on, and I get there, and Randy's there auditioning against <laughs> me. And <laughs> I'm like, is this how this works?
3: <laughs>
6: and he had come dressed in a costume. <laughs> it was just to be like a roadie on a beer truck. And he had built himself a roadie like kit with like tape and a drill and a hat on. It was amazing. <laughs> And then and then another time I was like, I got an audition for you, come over. And I was like, come over? <laughs> And he's like, Yeah, I gotta give you the sides. And I was like, You can't. I mean, email does exist at this time. And I go over, and then I, I'm, like, I'm like, Just trying to, like, he's got him in the door. I'm just trying to, like, grab him and get away. And he's like, Why don't you come in and read him for me? And I'm like, What are we doing? And then there's just a shirtless dude in his living room that never speaks and watches me while I read these sides for him, and then I, like, run out. So, what I. What I, what I now think happened was that Randy just woke up one day and was like, I'm an agent. Like, he had a, It's a magical in a way. Do you know what I mean? It's like waking up one day and just be like, I'm a weatherman. I mean, like, of course being an agent isn't as difficult as being a weatherman. It's somewhere between weatherman and dog walker. I mean, like, right? but, but still, there are specific skills, and he just decided he was one one night. And, but, so he does get me this, and I'm with him for, by the way, like, three fucking years.
3: Like, I stick with Randy, I stick with him. I had no other fucking options. And uh,
6: and he gets me this one audition, and I go in, and it's for this prank show, and I book it, and this is, like, the first time, my first TV gig, and it's for country music television, which I don't know if anybody watched, I think now they primarily have, like, Trucks that go fishing, like that's one show. Um, uh, and in that, it was called Prankville. And uh, and in it, I we were just prank people. Like it was just a normal prank show. And I know that I'm going to hell for doing pranks. I know. And I, but I was like psyched. I got a paycheck for the first time in my life. I was not able to quit my job, but <laughs> I had to have a full time job and also shoot this TV show. But but this was the worst part about it. Is that like I did multiple pranks and this is why I know I'm going to hell I did multiple pranks where I had to call women up set up dates with them and then go out on a date with them and the whole purpose of the day was to prank them and, and the only way I justified it in my mind was that their friends set them up on this like, I didn't just go and pick random women. Like, their friend was like, oh no, she this she's gonna love this, I'm not gonna tell her, and I'm gonna have her pranks and she'll be on television. And so, and it was the worst. And this was like, it was such a low budget that I actually had to call them up and like flirt with them on the phone a little bit, and then like ask them out to a dinner. And it was awful, and this was terrible, and I'll never do it again. And I'm going to hell. I've already done all of it. Uh, and so this was the one prank that was the worst of all the pranks that I ever had to do. It's not the worst. The worst was. <laughs> go this. The worst was I had to soak. They soaked my suit in uh, skunk and uh, and like coyote piss. And then I would put my suit on, and these girls would come, and I would just smell fucking horrible. And then I would try and have a date with them, and every, like only one girl left. Like, that was the saddest part. She was like, this guy smells like someone died inside of him. And I'm going to keep with the date, because dating in New York is hard? Um, Anyway, this was what I would do. This is the one thing. And by the way, I didn't come up with this idea. This is not my idea. I was just paid to act in it. I would have a little earwig in my ear uh, that nobody could see. And the producers would like, you know, tell me what to do. And I had a script and everything. But the idea was, this girl would come on a date. She would sit down. I would greet her. I would talk to her for maybe a minute, tops. And then I'd be like, I want you to meet my roommate. And I would pull out uh, a, a suitcase and open up and take out a, a, a ventriloquist doll that looked exactly like me. And then I would only speak to them through the ventriloquist doll for the rest of the day. I don't do ventriloquism, and I would just so I would just be like,
3: "Hey, what are you doing?" And I would be
6: fully talking, but just smiling, and I would just always look like, look at him while he was talking. And they would ask me to like talk to them, and I would only talk to with the with the puppet. And so this one, so we've done it. We, the way those prank shows work is you just do it over and over and over and over and over again until you get wh- whatever they want. And so we've done it a few times and then this like fourth time we did it this girl comes in and sits down she's a very nice girl uh and, we, and i pull the doll out and the fucking second i take the doll out her eyes go really big and she like grabs the table and it turns out that she has like a intense like this is her fucking nightmare
3: she has
6: an intense fear of puppets and ventriloquist dolls which totally makes sense and i I just licked the mic. That was so gross.
3: I pull,
6: I pull the doll out and I start talking to her with the doll and she immediately locks eyes with me and she's like, oh my God, please stop that. Oh my God, please stop that. And I've got the producer on my ear going, don't stop, don't stop, do the script, do the jokes, do it. And I was just like, I gotta, and I just keep doing it. And they're like, don't break, this is great. We're getting great stuff, keep going. And you know, I'm just like, ooh, you seem saucy, or whatever the fuck that guy said. Um, and and she's really, she's just, and she's pleading to me as a human being, to another human being, please stop, please stop. And literally, the the fucking doll is out for thirty five seconds when she just gets up and fucking runs, and she runs out of the of the thing, and finally the producer's like. Like, go get her. Go get a reveal. You can't lose her. And so I run after her.
3: <laughs>
6: because I'm being told to run after her. And I come out of the restaurant, and she's like a half block down the street at this point. But she stopped. Like, she stopped, and she was like, <sighs> and then I come out behind her, and I'm like, this is, this is a on television. This is a prank. Your friend set you up. This is TV. This is TV. And she just goes, no!
3: <laughs>
6: I don't believe you. And then I'm like, guys, guys, can you please send her friend out? If she doesn't believe me, just send her friend out. Cause her friend's fucking in the restaurant in like a hidden room. And we've run just far enough that my radio mic is just out of oh. service. So she's terrified. A guy who's just pulled out a ventriloquist doll had to try to have a date with her with it. Is just chased her and is now on the streets of New York guys, send her friend in. The guys, send her friend in and holding his ear. Uh, and no friend comes. And I'm like, I swear to God, this is a television show. And so then I run back inside and I get the producers. And they bring her friend out. She's still really upset about it. And she's so upset that she has to watch me do it again to another woman so that to prove to her that it's like, a made up reality that she's not crazy. And so here's where it gets fucking
3: weird. <laughs> Is that about,
6: I would say five years later, I'm at a party. I'm recently single and at a party in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I'm like walking around, had a few drinks. I'm like, let's find the place where everybody smokes weed. And I'm like, this door is closed. I bet you it's in here. And I open the door, and she's there. And she's just taking a nice big old rip off a pipe. And then I open the door, and she just starts screaming. That's what she goes. Ah, that's him. That's what she says. She says, that's him. Meaning the person she's with has full knowledge of who to her psyche that the two words that's him signifies me out of her entire life
3: and I am
6: like oh my god I'm so sorry I am so sorry and I like I explain the whole thing and I, and she's really freaked out still but I like I sit down with her and I'm like I'm so sorry like I explain the whole thing and it's like it's a horrible thing to do and why did your friend set you up for that and why did I agree to do that and I know why I did because it was a good five hundred dollars a week five (laughs) hundred dollars a week to destroy someone Uh, and and finally it makes it okay like we we get along and then um as I mentioned I was recently single (laughs) and so at the end of the night I was like can I get your number? and she gave it to
3: me (laughs) and then we went out on a real date! (laughs) and
6: guess what? it was horrible
3: (laughs) It was
6: totally not. We did not click whatsoever. It was not good. Uh, But the entire time, she did think that I was going to prank her again. And I hope that she's okay. And the way... I just... That's probably the end of the story. But I just hope she's okay. Anyway. I'm... Okay. Closing points. I'm a monster. I hope she's okay. The monster wants things to be okay. Okay. Good night, guys.
5: She can't seem to find a friend in the whole.
1: That brings us to the end of this episode, folks. That was Kurt Braunohler at the Risk Live show at the NerdMelt Melt Theater in Los Angeles. We do that once a month there and once a month at the Pit in New York City. And this is Loon Lake behind me now. Folks, come see Risk Live in Philadelphia on April 20th at the Free Library in association with First Person Arts. And don't forget that we teach storytelling, too, at thestorystudio.org. One-on-one, over Skype, in person here in New York. We even have a video course, a 14-lecture video course with a workbook included that you can get online. Just go to thestorystudio.org and click on the button that says, show me the videos. Look for us on Facebook and Twitter, at Risk Show. And look for me on Twitter, at the Allison. Find out all you want to know about our podcast and everything else we do at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
3: But it's almost nighttime, and you know that's the
1: This isn't penises and is involved,